Tonight, what do Justin Trudeau's open border policies mean for people who are actually fleeing persecution and violence around the world? Then we've got the incredible story of a victory for truckers involved in the Coots border blockade back in January and February of 2022. It's May 10th, 2023. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, but you are watching The Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. show you a couple of clips from a video report done by my friend, Calgary-based Rebel News reporter Adam Sos. The clips are from an interview he conducted with Calgary Conservative MP Tom Kamich on the damage caused by the Liberals' open-door policies at the southern border. And these damages are happening to families who are trying to come to Canada the right way, the legal way, the appropriate way, the orderly way. Actually, it's even worse than that because it's not really families that just want to emigrate to Canada, but rather families that want to reunite in safety and freedom here in Canada when one of them is stuck in a totalitarian hellscape, specifically the theocracy of Iran. So to be clear, one of the spouses in these instances is Canadian and the other is Iranian in a place plagued by an absence of civil rights, beatings and kidnappings at the hands of the morality police, and zero value placed on women and children. And unfortunately, it's taking the Canadian government years to process the applications of these people to allow the spouse in Iran to come to Canada to begin their lives here, to begin their lives here in peace as a complete whole family. Look at this. So these are Canadian citizens, permanent residents. They're working in Canada. Some of them are working here for decades. Legally here, they're Canadians just like the rest of us. And all they want is to have their loved one with them in Canada, their husband or their wife uh, here. And the government of Canada is making it really tough and difficult for them. Now, is this type of three to five year delay normal? Is this something we would have seen in the past? Or is this a direct consequence of Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government? No, so this department's a total like disaster. Uh, since 2015, they've doubled the money assigned to the department. They've doubled the staff. Uh, there's a backlog. All the applications before the pandemic, there was a, a 1.92 million backlog of applications. During the pandemic, it went up to 2.9 million. And then they got it down again to about 2 million. It took them about a year, year and a half to get it down. And because of the public service strike, they're estimating to be another 100,000 applications backlog extra on top of everything else. And I'll give you a number because I even have it here because I took the time I knew you'd be coming in. Uh, so spousal sponsorship back in 2019 was 12 months and now they're taking on average 16 months. But if you go by regions, so specific countries, and I have it here, Iran is 36 months, 36 months average, which means you're right. You know, some people are taking way longer, some people are a little bit shorter. But because of the natural disaster in Turkey and Syria, the big earthquake that happened, and then you have all of the unrest happening in Iran, uh, all of these people applications typically at the Ankara visa processing office are just massively backlogged. And as far as I know, uh, the liberals haven't put in any extra resources to try and expedite getting to the point where a person in Canada, lawfully, legally here, a citizen of Canada per resident is getting a yes or a no on their application. Imagine the terror and despair these couples are faced with nearly daily. 
There is a reason Stephen Harper closed Canada's Iranian embassy and then expelled Iranian diplomats from Canada back in 2012. At the time, it wasn't even safe for Canadian diplomats to be in Iran. So imagine what it's like to be the wife of a Canadian stranded there. Kamich is right when he says, it's only a matter of time before someone is killed in Iran while waiting to come to Canada. Now, we, we know, obviously, the, the Liberal government has caused problems, hardships, economic duress for people here, um, likely as a result of whether it be lost jobs, depression, some lives lost as a result, inevitably, of inept government. But what we're talking about here is there's legitimately a regime, um, there, there's, there's serious concerns about the safeties of these individuals in Iran, and the government here, is it carelessness? Is it ineptitude? They're not acting on this. And... I don't know if we know, but is, is there a potential or have there been lives lost in Iran, people waiting to come over? So I haven't heard of any cases where somebody who's being sponsored to come to Canada was killed in the protests by the Islamic Republic's regime, either the IRGC or the morality police or some other group. But that's just a question of time before yeah. it happens, because you have you know hundreds of thousand people taking to the streets. Uh, I personally know of Canadian citizens in Canada who have had family members murdered by the regime during the protests. Uh, if you're, you know, Kurdish in one of the Western provinces uh, in Rajalat is what they call it. Uh, chances are, if you're in Canada, you have, you know, family members who have their properties ransacked by the IRGC, uh, people jumping your fences in the night, killing your cattle or just shooting at your home or stealing from you. That is a common occurrence. And I get videos sent of me of people who are of Persian heritage, Baluchi heritage, uh, where there's IRGC in the streets shooting at protesters. So it's just a question of time before it happens. Mm -hmm. And you have, and it's a woman-led protest in Iran. So this is especially dangerous for women because they're all targets of the regime and there's a specific type of oppression that only the mullahs of calm are capable of. Putting the Iranian wives of Canadians in danger because of a failure to process paperwork at the hands of the liberals hardly seems like the actions of a feminist government, that feminist government that Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland won't shut up about. Remember this? And, you know, a person who is on his way to the coronation right now, um, but who right now is the guy skiing in front, breaking through the snow, getting beaten up, is our amazing Prime Minister. And we have to remember he's breaking the trail for us, right? And when he gets beaten up, it's for all of us. I know we remember that. Um, one of the things that is remarkable about his leadership is he is a truly feminist prime minister. And that is reflected in his cabinet. But even more importantly, it's reflected in our policies. But besides the very real danger to the safety of the Iranian-stranded spouse in this instance, imagine having to put off or delay starting your family because of Justin Trudeau's absolute ineptitude. Some people may be robbed entirely of the ability to start families at all because... Justin Trudeau, to use a very Canadian term, ragged the puck on your family reunification. While the wives and husbands of Canadians trying to do things the right way are put in real threat of danger and death, 
the people who try to come to Canada the wrong way have had the red carpet rolled out for them. And I can show you just how extensive this problem is with some data retrieved from an order paper question posed by Conservative MP Leanne Rood, who seems to be trying to get a handle on just the full scope of the problem, which has unfolded for years at Roxham Road, that little ditch crossing between Quebec and upstate New York, where nearly all of the illegal border crossings to Canada occur. Look at this. Since Trudeau took office, 105,315 asylum seekers have flooded across at Roxham Road. And it only took him eight years to finally do something about it after he first made it much, much worse by inviting everybody to come that way with his obnoxious tweet welcoming everybody to Canada. In 2022, nearly 39,000 asylum seekers crossed into Canada via that ditch at Roxham Road. And just this year, there were 9,000 asylum seekers in January and February alone, people arriving via that ditch at Roxham Road. But here's the chilling thing. That would be 4,500 people per month in the dead of winter, and we know those numbers explode over the summertime. So Canada was on track at the bare minimum to see 54,000 asylum seekers flooding across the border at that one location if those numbers held. There are still 7,500 and 58 illegal border crossers being put up in hotels as of March 16th, 2023. Meaning, Canadians have paid, all told, $128,521,372 on just hotels so far to accommodate asylum seekers to Canada. Um, Roxham Road is at least reportedly closed. Questions remain as to how closed it is. But since that road was closed, um, there's been something like 78 asylums uh, approved for people who have come through. Um, does it sort of set a bad precedent to have people who are coming in illegally then getting preferential treatment when there are these people who they have a, a spouse who's a Canadian citizen, they're trying to go through all the right steps, they're trying to do everything right, and they're waiting for three years? That's always been the problem with Roxham Road. So for immigrants like me who were born in another country, whose parents you know, took the time to fill out all the applications illegally, that's always going to be like a really uh, stark issue at the border. So the Roxham Road was, you know, was closed. We called for it to be closed within 30 days. We were told it wasn't that simple, you know, and then it closed within 30 days, exactly the way our leader Pierre Poliver said to do. Yeah. Um, the people who are still crossing the border. There were exceptions made in the deal we signed or the Canadian government signed with the American government. Uh, so the deal said that there are some public policy reasons certain people are still allowed to cross the border illegally. Uh, if you're a minor, if you are one of the selected groups that the minister can designate, if you have family in Canada, you can cross the border and make a claim. But those people are going to be applying at the Immigration Refugee Board mm -hmm. for refugee status as asylum claimants. Uh, the permanent resident applications and spousal sponsorship is a totally different group of people at IRCC. They're the people PBO said there's 65% too many of them 
uh, for the job that they're tasked to do right now. Right. So two different sets of people will be applying. And even at the Immigration Refugee Board, it takes them 17 to 23 months to, on average to process an application. So there's backlogs everywhere. There's long wait times everywhere. It doesn't matter which way you're trying to come to Canada. Since 2015, the federal government, the liberal government has totally screwed up our immigration system and the backlogs are entirely liberal created. It makes you wonder why anybody would ever try to do things the right way in Justin Trudeau's Canada. Stay with us on a border-related hopeful note. Chad Williamson from Williamson Law joins us after the break to discuss a major legal victory on behalf of over a dozen truckers charged at Coots, Alberta for their anti-mandate demonstration at the border. We'll be right back. truckers were just, if you pay attention to the mainstream media or for that matter, the government let off the hook for their crimes at Coots, Alberta. But there's a much different story happening there. And the man who made it happen, at least him and his team, is Chad Williamson from Williamson Law. He's got the full story for us. And I'm very happy to welcome Chad back to the show. Chad, how's it going? It's uh, very busy as always. Um, as you know, we deal with uh, not just trucker issues, but a whole host of uh, issues surrounding constitutional freedoms, charter rights. Uh, we obviously run a pretty busy practice just doing boring law for regular old Albertans. And obviously that stuff's important too. So uh, we're slammed. Um, I'm coming up on uh, uh, one of the first vacations I get this year. And I think it's going to get cut short with some of the work that I have to do. But I, I plan on recuperating a bit because we've got some pretty busy stuff coming up uh, later on this year. But I've got great news uh, for everybody uh, in respect of some of the work that we're doing on uh, on Coots. Yeah, you've really just had your pedal to the metal lately because you're working so hard on so many of our cases. You know, you're working on um, even just things that are we initially reported on and then they're sort of dragging their feet through the court system like you know the case of mom's diner and a few others and we'll we'll get an update on those towards the end of the interview but tell us exactly what happened with these 14 truckers from Coots Alberta yeah fair so um, what had happened is there's been a whole host of charges uh, that have been laid uh, in relation to uh, allegations of uh, uh, criminal and regulatory um, uh, misconduct, obviously, down uh, uh, during the Coots border blockade. So we've been appointed to some of those. Uh, some of them we haven't been appointed to. There's obviously some more serious charges, uh, namely, of course, the uh, uh, allegations of uh, criminal mischief against uh, the uh, alleged organizers uh, of the blockade. Uh, we're still going through... Uh, almost 81 gigabytes of disclosure on that. So that's a pretty thick file. Uh, we've got some uh, other mischief charges. Um, but one of the big files that we've got uh, was all of the tickets uh, that were basically handed down and laid to people who had allegedly had equipment parked out on that highway. Um, it's my understanding that we had, I believe, 35 intakes or something. So they laid quite a few charges. And now most of these charges are, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, highway safety traffic act tickets um, and uh, uh, not necessarily uh, criminal charges, but more regulatory uh, kind of in nature. So just a bunch of ticket cases. Um, obviously, with some of the help that we've received from uh, the generous uh, uh, donors that are funding uh, the lovely Democracy Fund, as always, um, we've been able to appoint an amazing lawyer to that file, uh, our very own Sean Mahulshan, uh, who is not just a, an amazing lawyer and a guy with a great beard, uh, but also a guy who is, uh, I believe, a 17-year veteran of the Canadian forces. Uh, he did a tour of Afghanistan. Uh, he's an amazing guy, and there couldn't have been anyone better to have been appointed to these uh, um you know, seemingly nuisance uh, uh, ticket uh, tickets that people got uh, for allegedly having the stuff down on the highway. Now, we had a schwack of them, Sheila. So we did a whole bunch of intakes, very similar to like the fight the fine stuff, right? Yeah. As soon as we opened the floodgates for these files oh, to yeah, come in. Terrible. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and I've got to give a lot of credit to my little sister, Ellie Williamson, who runs the front desk and the initial intakes here. She's probably one of the sweetest, uh, sweetest people I've ever met. And she's kind of the first point of contact for all of the truckers, all of the restaurateurs, people who are uh, hit with masking tickets, uh, you know, social distancing tickets. Um, Ellie's been the, the lovely and kind smiling face that has uh, helped bring those folks into the firm before a lawyer's appointed to them. So just turn Turning, uh, of course, to these tickets, we got a schwack of them. Um, we've had 14 of them totally gassed, and this is amazing. So Sean's a pretty clever cookie, uh, and we're all nerds here. You can't see it, but I've actually got four giant monitors in front of me. Like, it looks like I'm sitting in like a NASA space office here. Uh, and I often have clients come in, accuse me of trading crypto and being a day trader kind of <laughs> while I juggle my law career. But I assure you, I just need this to be able to look at like multiple documents at once. Uh, Sean has a similar set up. And I mean, the guy's great with computers, uh, despite the fact that he's also really handy with a firearm. Uh, and he's, you know, served our country uh, for, oh, man, a long time. He's a renaissance man. He's <laughs> he, he's an interesting dude. Uh, so again, his, his name is uh, Sean Mahulshan, great guy. Uh, he's just started his own law firm called Highland Law, which is kind of cool. And of course, we still uh, hire him to do a whole bunch of work. And he still works uh, quite a bit with us under the Williamson Law banner. And he's just a great guy. Um, so Sean, in his wisdom... He determined that the parking violations that were handed down to these particular 14 individuals and organizations required in the offense specifically um, that the offense had to occur on highways outside of an urban area. It didn't take long to pull up a quick Google map and review some of the, uh, what I would consider to be maybe lazy disclosure footage that was provided to us by uh, the prosecutors on this matter to determine that all of these tickets were issued within the corporate limits of Coots, which invalidated the tickets. So um, this is, I mean, it's a technicality, but you know what? We'll take it. Um, after bringing that to the attention of the Crown, uh, the Crown simply just withdrew 14 uh, of these charges against uh, these truckers uh, and their, uh, their, their owner uh, corporations that own the vehicles. Now, we still have, I believe, 15 left. 
And we've got a we've got a pretty robust strategy there. Uh, you've been kind of watching uh, some of the work that we've done in the uh, the whistle stop matter, and obviously in relation to the fight the fine stuff, which is very interesting because of course we had about fifty five files or or maybe a hundred. I think we opened one hundred and twenty five one hundred and twenty five files, something like that, and then it, we whittled it down to about fifty, which were a little bit more drawn out. We just had another ticket. So we only have three left. And this is, I mean, out of all of them, we got them all gassed, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, we just had, and of course, this was Sean Mahulshan. He ran this one to trial. Uh, this was uh, a gentleman who got a ticket for taking off his mask during a medical emergency uh, on an airliner. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a long written decision on that one. Poof, that one's gone as well. Uh, not guilty, which is absolutely amazing. We've only got two left. Out of all the Fight the Fines files, we still don't have one conviction at trial, which is absolutely crazy considering the amount of money, uh, power, uh, that the government put behind not only the manpower required to go out and investigate and lay these charges, serve people with the tickets, HHS health inspectors, all this bureaucracy, only to go to the crown to have us put up a bristled defense on every single one of them. Again, thanks to the generous contributions uh, from the Civil Civil Liberties Charity Democracy Fund. We got two left. We got Mr. Langlois and we've got Chris Scott. And in those cases, uh, we've we've brought fulsome disclosure applications to get to the very heart of what we consider to be the political uh, reason for these charges. And, you know, obviously maybe not related to uh, 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 public health. And those are the allegations. We'll see what the evidence, uh, or what comes out with the evidence. But in respect to the 15 trucker tickets, Sheila, that we've got left, um, if these aren't withdrawn, and again, these are just I mean, their traffic and their highway safety tickets, we plan on on approaching these with the same gusto and the same vigor that we have approached every case that has been um, so, you know, uh, uh, so wonderfully brought to our office. And we're obviously grateful to do such cool work for people out there, for Albertans, um, I mean, who have been struggling through not just the pandemic, but uh, through the border blockade, um, people expressing their constitutional right to uh, uh, freedom of association freedom of expression, freedom of political uh, association and assembly, uh, and people who we consider their rights to have been trampled uh, by the aggressive uh, overreach of this monolithic, uh, the remnants of the ghost of the monolithic Jason Kenney government government that we just cannot seem to put out of its misery. Um, So we've got 15 more cases. Uh, It's going to be really interesting. And this is, of course, just the trucker uh, ticket cases. Uh, But Sean's got a, he's a man with a plan. And I think it's a pretty good plan. Um, It looks like the the amount sought uh, in terms of the penalty on those cases was for some reason, uh, and I might be misunderstanding, uh, 20% higher than what they should have been. So is there a reason why all these truckers were, you know, pinched for something perhaps 
more, you know, that why they're looking for more money than they would if this was just somebody else that had parked their rig on the side of the highway, allegedly unlawfully. Uh, we're not sure, but uh, in the same way that we're going to be uh, seeking disclosure from Alberta Health Services in terms of the motivation behind some of the fight the fines restaurant rebellion cases, we really want to find out what the motivation was for uh, 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 issuing these these remaining tickets. Now, it's interesting to point out, Sheila, that that on initially, we just had some agents uh, representing the Crown. So these are uh, typically not lawyers. They're just uh, like law clerks that mm -hmm. are kind of uh, just thrown into the ring to see if they can get people to pay them right away. As soon as the bristled defense obviously was put up, now we've got real Crown lawyers on the other side. So Sean continues to work these files with, uh, you know, enthusiasm and vigor like he always does. And it's going to be uh, really interesting to see what happens with the rest of them. There's supposed to be a trial in June or July for all of them. Um, for some reason, for some reason, they thought that they could get through uh, 30 tickets in two days, which is crazy because uh, that's literally like 30 trials in two days. And if anyone has been watching some of our other court proceedings, we can barely get through uh, one witness in like half a day, right? So um, it's going to be really interesting to see how the uh, Crown deals with the remainder of the prosecution of these tickets and, and, and more so how the court will respond to uh, the defenses that we're going to uh, advance for these truckers. So it'll be interesting to see. But suffice to say that uh, that condensed day, uh, those trial dates, they've all been vacated now that a crown is on there. So we're probably going to get these plucked down uh, with maybe a more reasonable time frame for uh, proper adjudication and so forth. So, um, and and I'm, I mean, I might sound a little smug and, you know, I might be kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> I might take... I might take a little bit of self-satisfaction in the fact that, uh, you know, um, in, in the face of an unlimited budget, uh, practically unlimited manpower, um, a little family run firm of a brother, a sister, an infantry guy from the army and uh, uh, a fellow Martin Raymond, who we affectionately refer to as Party Marty. And now you, this is just because you have to see this guy out on the golf course to actually believe to believe, uh, to understand why he gets this name, Party Marty. Um, there's only a couple people here, and we've uh, we've uh, we've really done such a great job of stifling uh, what we feel to be uh, unfair and unjust prosecutions of Albertans just expressing their charter rights. Well, if you must know, they also call me Tequila Sheila. Out on <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, I I know why. We're fighting these tickets um, because we think everybody deserves a, a strong legal defense and people deserve help when they're up against the unlimited resources of the government. What I can't quite figure out, although I do have my speculations, is why the government continues to pursue these tickets against, like, they're sparing no cost. I mean, they're taking these tickets to trial. I'm reliably informed that I think the province of Alberta is short about 50 crowns where yeah. real crimes with real victims, because I think the only victim here is like the highway. Um, those cases are in jeopardy of being tossed out because there's shortage of crowns. And yet the province is still pursuing these tickets against these truckers for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I'd also say that one of the other uh, kind of victims here is the uh, Albertan uh, taxpayer who has had to finance 
um, these cases when, um, and again, this is just my opinion, but a lot of that money could actually have been uh, maybe more properly attributed to the prosecution and uh, uh, the, you know, dealing with real criminal stuff like domestic, uh, domestic violence, uh, assaults, uh, break and enters, murders, sexual assaults, uh, white collar crime, which is, uh, you know, obviously a problem uh, kind of all over, all over the country. Um, but the fact that they've kind of zeroed in on these, uh, um, you know, deplorables, uh, as some might call them, uh, is, is really troubling because really, uh, we do see this as, uh, uh, as retribution for people putting up an opposition to, um, uh, ideological principles, uh, you know, that they, that they disagree with. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been interesting to see, um, Frankly, I don't think that uh, the Crown or, you know, Alberta Health Services or any of the opposition um, that we've come up against have really, um, I don't think they think that they had anticipated uh, some of the some of the defense strategies that we've employed. Um, and we, we just work with such a creative team. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, I just want to give a shout out to Yoav Niv of Niv Law, who everyone knows, uh, um, a wonderful, uh, tall, lanky, super intelligent dude who looks great in a suit, by the way, uh, who has been instrumental in guiding my firm with his extensive knowledge of really serious, hardcore mm. criminal law defense. I mean, the guy is... He's a weapon, and uh, we're just so lucky that he's been able to uh, assist. Of course, our, a senior, a guy by the name of Ken Johnson, who most Rebel viewers don't even know. He's a big, tall dude that kind of reminds me of, like, the university professor I never had. He's been at the bar for 40 years and has been supervising to make sure that these young cavalier lawyers that uh, we throw into the ring um, are obviously uh, playing by the rules and, and that we've considered all angles, and he's been instrumental as well. It never hurts to have a gray hair in the building. Um, <laughs> and those are his words, not mine. So we're, you know, Sheila, we're, we're, we're just so lucky. Um, and I think Albertans are, are, and Canadians. Um, I, I mean, I mean, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, um, dismiss, uh, all the work that the democracy fund has done in other jurisdictions outside Alberta. Obviously I'm from Calgary and, um, Alberta is where, uh, kind of where my heart is. Um, but I mean, there's been, you know, what was there like two, 2000 or 2200 fight the fines tickets yep. most of those being out in eastern canada and the democracy fund has just been on top of those like a pit bull on a poodle and uh and they've done outstanding work and that wouldn't be possible without uh people coming together uh and assisting with the financing uh of of of, of these important defenses which uh uh and the, and the the great thing is is that we've been able to actually show value for that money it's not just going down some uh sucking pit of despair uh and you know resulting in a whole bunch of convictions um time after time and and again much to our surprise um um, right across the country, these civil rights charities lawyers uh, have been scoring resounding successes. And um, I know that there's also been kind of uh, uh, some desolation and people, you know, obviously lacked hope during the pandemic. Um, but I hope that just even just these little wins, like if we can get, you know, a 
a ticket expunged or uh, a restaurateur to be found uh, not guilty of Public Health Act tickets, um, or even to have someone who may be found guilty somewhere down the line, if we can get their sentence reduced significantly or to make um, that prosecution more bearable for people, that has real value for people. And it really and truly um, affects people's lives in a meaningful way. And this isn't under the microscope. We don't get to see um, what may have happened had they not had a legal defense, or um, we don't get to see maybe the the conversation around the dinner table that night going like, oh my God, I, you know, that ticket got tossed. I'm so glad I could move on with, you know, uh, you know, my life farming or like my life trucking or like, you know, I work in an office tower downtown and like now I'm, now I'm good to go or now I can run, continue to run my restaurant without being, um, uh, you know, kind of involved in the court system, which is a, stre- a stressful and horrible uh, experience for everybody that usually has to go through it. I want to ask you really quick while I have you for yeah. um, just a, a brief update on what's happening with Chris Scott of the Whistle Stop. So he, I mean, I think we just had the anniversary of his arrest <laughs> of being taken away in handcuffs um, for three days after protesting the government seizing his property. What uh, What's going on there right now? Yeah, so really interesting. I was actually in docket court up in Red Deer by WebEx, which is a kind of a remote video conferencing that sometimes we use for uh, uh, matters that don't require an in-person appearance by a lawyer. So we were supposed to receive a very important decision yesterday uh, from the presiding judge in Chris Scott's case. Um, there's, there's basically been a big issue in that case where we have uncovered that there was a whole bunch of emails that were not provided to us. And these are internal Alberta Health Service emails uh, where uh, Chris Scott's investigation um, and his uh, uh, his charges or the allegations against him were discussed internally by upper AHS management, by the inspectors, um, and by the RCMP and a lot of the individuals that were involved in uh, bringing and uh, uh, bringing those charges against him. So when we found at trial by questioning one of the Alberta Health Services witnesses that there was all these emails, we made an application on the spot during the trial. It was quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, un, you know, unlike uh, you know, like suits or like Boston Legal or like the practice, um, if you've ever spent any time in a Canadian courtroom, it's very fascinating, but it lacks a lot of the dramatic flair that you usually get to see on TV and all this sort of stuff. And that's not the case at the cross-examination, uh, specifically during Chris Scott's trial of that Alberta health inspector. I think I cross-examined him yes. for a day and a half. Uh, and I mean, I got so fired up. I had to ask the judge to take off my blazer because I was sweating the and I was animated. Asked, the judge asked the AHS inspector if he was okay and if he needed a break. I recall that specifically because I was in the courtroom. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it was wild. And obviously, I'm known for a little bit of exuberance in the courtroom, which I obviously have to uh, tone down. And, and and I just want everyone else to know that I pay nothing but the utmost respect and deference yeah. to our legal system and the cornerstones of democracy that are so important to this province and this country. Um, by, by no means, when I get excited, am I trying to, you know, obviously bring that into disrepute or show any disrespect. But I do get passionate passionate. Uh, it's great to have Yoav there because the guy's cool as a cucumber and he has a, mm-hmm. he has the really great effect of, uh, of, uh, 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 of just leveling out, uh, um, the, 
leveling out counsel for the defense. So during that cross-examination, we simply asked if they had uh, discussed Mr. Scott, uh, you know, Chris, by emails. They said that they did. Um, we asked if, uh, if those emails were disclosed. They were not. We made an application on the spot and a whole schwack of emails were provided. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe there's something like 400 pages of emails. And the emails contained um, some fairly shocking, uh, or what we think are, are really shocking um, evidence of Alberta Health Services really focusing on Chris Scott in terms of trying to make themselves look good, uh, and that being AHS, trying to protect their image as being the defenders of public health. Um, we didn't see a lot of emails in respect of protecting public health. This really did look, uh, at least our interpretation of the emails, is that this really did look like a political uh, investigation and prosecution of Chris Scott uh, because he was in opposition, opposition to the uh, COVID mandates and uh, and and. and so so forth. Um, so once we got those emails, um, it looked like there was probably a whole bunch more disclosure, which was mentioned in the emails. And this would be things like internal memorandum of meetings that they had about Chris Scott, uh, other correspondence, other notes. Um, we then made an application after that for all this stuff. Uh, this goes right to the RCMP. Uh, we made a disclosure for application uh, to the office of the uh, of the premier, uh, an application against the solicitor general of Alberta, uh, further dis uh, further application for disclosure from uh, both the Crown and Alberta Health Services as well. For all this stuff, uh, we don't think that you can make a full and fair and complete answer. Uh, to charges against you without being in receipt of full disclosure. And this is Canadian law. Now, the recent disclosure application kind of was in two parts. So it's it gets a little technical and I won't get into the crazy stuff, but first you have to figure out if it's first or third party disclosure. Um, there's a legal, uh, there's kind of legal criteria for um, whether or not something that's first or third party needs to be disclosed by the party who has those documents. And there's different rules for each of them. So the first task of the court is to look at everything that we're asking for, go through the list and say, first party, first party, third party, or, or what have you, and make a determination right. as to what type of disclosure we're requesting. So that's part one. And then part two would be whether or not the disclosure has to be turned over pursuant to whatever category they get lumped into. So the first part of that decision uh, is obviously uh, the judge uh, determining whether or not they're first party or third party and, and kind of applying that categorization to each little bit that we're requesting. That decision was supposed to happen yesterday. Um, it's now been adjourned and I believe it's been put over to May 29th. Oh, actually, I got my calendar here. Uh, it has been put over and uh, the judge will be rendering his decision at 1.30 in the afternoon in the Red Deer Courthouse um, on uh, whether or not the disclosure that we're requesting is first party or third party. After that, we have kind of round two where everyone's going to make submissions as to whether or not the disclosure that we're requesting uh, has met the criteria pertaining to the, the, their category, right? So again, really technical, um, 
but we've 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 had some really interesting revelations. We feel uh, in those emails, um, we think that there's some additional stuff that they've got that they haven't turned over to us that are material and relevant, obviously, to the charges against Chris Scott. And what's important here is it's not so much relevant to um, the 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 actual bringing of the charges. It's more relevant to our charter and constitutional application uh, invoking Chris's right to freedom of speech, freedom of association. Uh, freedom of political thought, uh, and all that good stuff. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see. It's a fascinating case. Now, turning to Wesley Langlois, this is the other, as his mom's diner, this is the other case that we've had. So the trial in that matter, it's over. It's done. However, because of the revelations uh, from the Chris Scott trial, and co uh, coincidentally, we have the same judge in um, the, uh, the Langlois matter that we have in Chris Scott's matter, um, we've now made an application to reopen cross-examinations of the Al Alberta Health Inspector. I uh, want to get this fellow in the witness box, and I want to put these additional questions to him, questions that uh, were not, uh, uh, that we weren't, uh, uh, we weren't able to put to him because we didn't know at that time uh, that this extra disclosure existed, at least in another case. Um, obviously, the position of the Crown is that the cases are unrelated. Uh, but look, I mean, they were investigated by the exact same folks through the central AHS re uh, region during the same time over COVID stuff. They're both restaurants. I don't think on, you know, on, on the face of it that anyone could think that there weren't internal uh, documents um, that were, you know, uh, were, were they discussed uh, Wesley's case. So we've got a little bit more of a different angle there, but we've now made an application to essentially reopen that trial uh, and to re-examine uh, the Alberta Health Inspector in that case as well. And we're, uh, we're still waiting for submissions from the Crown, which is their response to our uh, application. That comes in. In, uh, on this Friday. So lots of moving pieces. Um, we've, you know, we've got this, uh, this big matter out in Toronto, where I'll be flying out in June to um, challenge uh, Minister Gilbo uh, for Rebel News over the very, very important uh, issue as to whether or not a politician can block members of their constituency on public media and prevent them from uh, accessing uh, official government content. So that'll be a very interesting case as well. And it's, it's fundamental to all Canadians. Um, so we're doing some really crazy stuff. I can't believe that I'm even on these cases. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to just do car crashes and real estate deals. And, you know, if you want to sell your farm, I could do that too. I mean, uh, <laughs> Well, I'm so glad you are, though, because you you've been so instrumental in the fight for freedom, in the fight for free speech, in the fight for free expression and the right to protest, not just in Alberta, but for us here at Rebel News. You've helped us take the federal government to court uh, and you won <laughs> with um, very little prep time. Um, and so I'm really proud to be a part of offering that same expertise to just the normal common Albertan who deserves a fulsome legal defense. Uh, I think Canada is a lot more free because of the work that you guys do at Williamson Law, Chad. So um, on behalf of everybody here at Rebel News, but also I think on behalf of the normies of Alberta, of which I count myself as one, thanks so much and, and give my gratitude to the team at Williamson Law, if you will.
Yeah, and I, I totally will. And, and thank you guys again for doing what you do. And it's just uh, it's just such an honor and a privilege every day. Uh, I'm just so grateful to um, uh, to be able to help people. I think uh, I just love this province. And even if I wasn't doing law, I'd be out there, you know, in some capacity trying to uh, make people's lives better, especially during, uh, um, you know, increasingly dark times. So it's uh, uh, people should keep hope uh, because because there is there is hope that uh, freedom and liberty will prevail. What? A great soundbite from Chad Williamson <laughs> to end the interview on. He's like a soundbite machine. Chad, thanks so much. Uh, stay with us, viewers at home. Your letters and notes to Ezra, disappointingly read by me, up after the break. Letters, 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 as David Menzies always says, we get your letters all day, every day. Your questions, your comments, your story ideas, your feedback. And we welcome it all because without you, there is no Rebel News. So we need to listen to you. Now, your letters have rolled in on Tamara Ugolini's monologue on the United Nations and their places to further promote vaccination despite increasing evidence of the harms of not just vaccination, but forced vaccination. Free West guy writes, nobody elected any of the creepy pedophiles, that's his words, not mine, don't sue me, at the United Nations, so I don't see why anyone would listen to anything they say. Well, whether we like it or not, the United Nations is there. Now, we don't need to listen to them, but I think we should pay very close attention to the things they really want to do to us. And this is one of those things. And whether or not you think the United Nations is some sort of benevolent force for peace, order, good government, and I don't know, societal health, or if you're like me and you think they are um, control freak overlords who want to use any manner of whipped up catastrophe, doomsday predictions to control your life. And I mean that in any number of ways, the climate scare, um, online radicalization, they like to talk about that, or uh, the pandemic or, or health-related things to control what you see, say, and do. Whether or not you think that the United Nations is bad or whether or not you think the United Nations are good. I don't think that anyone can disregard the hindsight of what we now know about vaccination. At worst, these vaccines did some very real harm to the healthiest amongst us, might I add, you know, young men under the age of 30. But at the very least, they didn't actually do anything. All they did was make a lot of pharmaceutical companies very, very rich and strip away civil liberties and identify for governments around the world who are the most compliant amongst us, who would tattle on their friends and neighbors and who would absolutely go along to get along despite nearly almost zero evidence that going along to get along would do any good. So um, I think, you know, like whether wherever you fall down on the United Nations, I mean, it, it must be absolutely crazy to you either way that they are still 
promoting these COVID vaccines regardless of what we all know now to be true. And I think I probably just got this show made absolutely <laughs> not safe for YouTube because you're not allowed to be a little bit too truthful on YouTube about these sorts of things. On Tamara's interview, which was incredible, by the way, with Dr. Byram Bridal, a man who has been silenced, attacked, nearly canceled for his early objections to the way governments and the medical establishment were both reacting to the pandemic. One Christian versus Islam writes, these globalists think people are going to stay slight. They have another thing coming. More and more people are coming out on the open. God bless you, doctor, for coming out and standing for the truth. You know, he has paid dearly for it, but he refuses to be silent. Uh, I say this all the time, but one of the things that really concerns me about um, forced vaccination, the vaccine mandates, was that the conscientious objectors, the people who have a moral code of black and white, whether or not you agree or think the vaccine is effective. There are a lot of people who said, I don't think people should be forced to do this. And I won't discriminate against the people who are objecting. Those people are normally in, in better times in a wiser, saner society. Those are the people we elevate to positions of management and leadership because they do have leadership skills. They're resistant to peer pressure. They don't discriminate. They welcome objecting viewpoints as a means by which to check their own viewpoint. But those people were all pushed out, which means that all of our institutions right now, well, not all of them, but the majority of our institutions right now, the mainstream media, government, academia, medicine, by and large, the legal system, policing, the military, a lot of the people left in management are the yes men. And I think it will be a few years before we really see just how damaging that will be to society writ large. And again, on the show last night, Eric JS writes, hi, dear rebel guys. I loved Tamara's show last night. Thank you. Love. So, um, I did too. <laughs> I don't really have much to say. Tamara does a great job hosting the show. Um, thanks for bearing with us, by the way, everybody. As Ezra is feeling a little bit under the weather, nothing that anybody has to worry about, but we've all come together to make sure that the boss um, can recoup and recover and come back stronger than ever. Again, I reiterate, nothing anybody needs to worry about. Um, he's just a little bit under the weather and uh, taking a little time to rest. So... That's that. Thanks for watching the show, everybody. Thanks to everybody in the studio in Toronto who works really hard to put the show together and everybody who works behind the scenes to make sure the show is there for you to watch it when the team in Toronto is done with it. And one of us, I one of us, not Ezra, but one of us will be hosting the show tomorrow. So again, we'll see you back here tomorrow. It won't be me. It'll be somebody though. And as Ezra always says, keep fighting for freedom. Mm -hmm.